Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Frederick Archambault, and if you're not familiar with Frederick, Frederick is a producer, mixer, songwriter, musician, and engineer from Los Angeles, California, and he's best known for working with artists such as Avenged Sevenfold, Atreyu, Deftones, Panic at the Disco, and many more. And he also worked as a mixing engineer for NBC's Last Call with Carson Daly. So in this interview, we get into a lot of cool conversation about working in heavier music, as well as working in broadcast audio. And we also have a really interesting chat about what it takes to survive the current music business and what skills you need to have to keep top of mind and to be able to take advantage of all of the different opportunities that exist out there. I just think that it's a really good conversation for you to listen to if you're serious about making a living in music and you're tired of hearing, you know, there's no jobs or there's not enough money out there in the music business, all that kind of stuff. I think there clearly is, but it takes a bit of diversification, and that's what we get into in our chat today. So definitely, you're going to want to listen up to this. So with all of that said, let's just jump right into the interview, because I know that there's so much good stuff in here, and I know you're going to learn a lot. Frederick Archambault, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's awesome. Thank you. I'm really super humbled to uh, to be a part of it, and I, I appreciate you reaching out, and I'm, I'm looking forward to digging here for the next uh, 45 to an hour and and chatting about all things music and production, which I probably like many of you guys, folks listening, I love. Like, I just, that's, you know, I love that aspect of what uh, I've been able to kind of accomplish in my career. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Let's nerd out then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? For, for people who might not know you or some of the music you've worked on or maybe not know your background and how you got into music and production, can you give us that story? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you kind of the the quick quick overview. Um, yeah, so you know, a lot of my credits come under like Fred Archambault. So if you're just kind of to you know kind of Google that or All Music that, um, but I've really kind of made a, um, I guess I kind of you know had some traction in, in kind of like what I call guitar oriented music, like guitar oriented heavy music. Um, I, I try not to say like hard rock or heavy metal because I don't know if I necessarily sit in those lanes as a record producer or as an engineer or a mix engineer. And it's definitely not necessarily um, all that I listen to, you know, as a, as a fan of music, as, as a consumer. So, um, so a lot of work kind of a little, little bit backwards, a lot of the big records that, um, you know, were really lucky to be a part of and had some great success were like the, I'm not going to say the first of Avenged Sevenfold records, but it, it was record two, I think two, three, four. So, um, so Avenged Sevenfold. So from Wake in the Fallen, City of Evil, the self-titled and, um, what became like a DVD B-sides of self-titled, which was Diamonds in the Rough. The, that body of work is probably the, the biggest thing that people know me from, um, which is super cool. And then, you know, from there, I've been able to be a part of some really iconic records like Converge Jane Doe. Um, that I worked on as a second engineer, um, but super proud to be a part of that record because that record is much like Waking the Fall and very much a landmark cult record um, that many people in the lifestyle genre or the lifestyle or the, you know, the people that really know guitar and heavy music, those, those are records that are very much worn on people's sleeves, as it were, um, like kind of a critical acclaimed record. Um, 
I worked on a Deftones record that became uh, Saturday Night Wrist, which was their fifth LP for Maverick. Um, uh, see a Treyu, super stoked to work with that, and then a ton of other bands that like you know um, you probably will never hear, <laughs> but I'm equally as proud of. Um, and so, what got me into producing and making records was just a real love at like probably age ten of of music and kind of that connection that music gives somebody who is trying to find their way, you know, you, you're kind of starting to get an identity uh, when you kind of become that age. And some people really um, have a great talent at sports. Right. Um, and, and maybe they're encouraged in that. Maybe now like, you know, kids are really getting into, you know, computer tech, IT programming, maybe even video gaming. Like those are the communities that they really resonate with. And that's what gives them a sense of um, belonging. Uh, for me, it was music. And um, and so ever since I was 10 years old and, and found a dusty old guitar in my parents' attic, that was the thing that really connected with me and, and really sparked this long lifelong journey of trying to understand uh everything that comes with music right like the, <laughs> the the political side the artistic side the scientific side the tech side uh, everything it, it, it's so multi-diverse and uh, multifaceted so it's um if you're somebody that is always curious um going into music um is is going to satiate that i guess so that's kind of like the big overview i think i kind of checked a lot of the boxes i think a couple of the things that I'll also share in my career is um, with all these other records that I've been a part of as well Is um, I had about a seven, eight year stint um, producing all the music and kind of being the director of the audio department for this uh, TV show called Last Call with Carson Daly. And that was a TV show that was part of the late night package that was sold on NBC here in the United States and, you know, um, kind of started to stream um, as well. But very music centric show. And so I, I was able to produce like so many um, acts for that and mix so many acts for that. And it was a very unique workflow, I think in our industry of, of basically taking a live performance and trying to kind of produce it or mix it in the studio. It, it kind of gives a different, um, I think dimension and uh, representation of an artist's song. And so I probably mixed, I, I would say close to about 2000 songs for broadcasts. And I worked from everybody from, uh, I, you know, was the first person to work with Kendrick Lamar on a network, um, television debut. I'd sheer in for a network television debut, uh, working with artists like Mastodon, um, M83, Weezer, there's so many, Hazley, Halsley, uh, um, so many artists. I was really, really proud of what I was able to achieve with that television show. And that really opened my opportunity to a lot of different workflows. And actually now currently I'm back at NBC, actually NBC Universal, and I actually manage uh, global media operations for their content management audio. So like all the audio for all the different television shows, streaming platforms and movies, right? And all the um, different re-releases. And so um, it's a little bit of a different skill set. Um, as far as not necessarily being in the studio, but like managing workflows and understanding audio in a different way. So I'm really proud that everything has kind of boiled up into this opportunity. Um, and it's really enabled me to kind of um, view things with a different lens and also offer a lot of my expertise and in, into a different kind of realm but we can kind of get into that but uh yeah, but yeah that, sure. that's I would definitely the, love uh, to dig into that that's the huge nuts and bolts there so um 
yeah. Very cool. Pretty Very lucky. Cool. <laughs> yeah, no, but, th- but that's awesome. Like, and and you could tell, like you said, you're like passionate about learning this stuff, and there's always so much that you can learn in the music industry. So it kind of makes sense that like you, because there is so much that you can learn and so many different avenues that you can go in. You know, it kind of makes sense that you would have been the person that would diversify yourself and not just stick to one lane and, you know, that's it. So um, very cool that you were able to get into some of this other stuff. And, and I do want to definitely talk about the uh, like the, the, all the work that you've done in broadcast, because I think that's really interesting. Um, but to, to go back a little bit first, how did you get into the studio world? Like, obviously, you loved music, but like, how did you get in? No, yeah, that, 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 that's always, I think, a great question. So I was um, at the time going to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And in fact, I actually left Berkeley in, in about, I think, 1999 to pursue a couple of other opportunities. One was with Blue Man Group and one was this, uh, a pretty big touring band at the time. But um, uh, and I'm actually now going back and finishing my degree. But one of the classes that I took at Berkeley was um, basically music production for musicians. And it was a really broad based overview about um, modern recording techniques from uh, the lens of, of practicing musicians. So you don't really necessarily get into the weeds about compression and EQ, but here's what compression and EQ are, right? Like, yeah, here's week six, here's compression, right? Like you can spend a lifetime understanding compression. Um, so it was kind of one of those classes. And one of the final projects for the class was like, you went to area studios and you um, book time as if you were a client. And so I, uh, I was introduced to the studio in Boston called New Alliance, and they were behind at the time um, Fenway Park. The building is no longer there. It's, I think, now become condominiums. But um, I, I just really, I was like, this is such a great and cool environment. I just fell in love with the environment. So after that class was done, I reached out to them wanting to do an internship. And they were really kind enough, this gentleman, Andrew Murdoch, who later became known as Mudrock. And I you know, worked on some Avenge records with, and, you know, I was, I helped him out on the first Godsmack record. So it was really kind of luck that I was able to kind of find this really cool studio that one, um, opened their arms and doors to me, but also was kind of, you know, doing cool shit. Right. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of what got me into it. Um, and that's where I learned and met so many people that impacted my career still to this day. Um, you know, from interning at that studio, obviously, I, I, I met and learned from Andrew Murdoch, Mudrock. But um, there was another gentleman by the name of Ross Humphrey that was like, kind of more of a live guy, but he would come in and work on records and he had close ties with Blue Man Group and the Goo Goo Dolls, which are two you know projects that I worked on. Um, so you kind of just in those early years, you those are the networking things that you um, you know. Uh, I will always like preach that like you're always going to want to work on your soft assets, right? Like we have our hard assets, right? Like I'm looking at you here on Zoom, um, and I see your hard asset of this recording studio that you're sitting in, right? But the soft asset is who's in your Rolodex? Like who are, who are your, your network that you can kind of lean on, right? Those aren't necessarily the tangible things, but things that you need to develop throughout your whole process and throughout your whole career, especially one that is so network driven as the music industry and the entertainment industry. Um, so, you know, always like look at those opportunities. Like, even though that was an internship, it's still, um, the investment and the ROI on that, right? My return of investment and the time spent really paid off because I was able to network and create those opportunities into paying situations. And so every project's going to have that element to it. Like it might not be necessarily like the big 
project that you want to work on, but it, it potentially could lead to other things, whether it becomes a cult classic record or like you, you meet other people through that process. Right. So, um, so that, yeah, it kind of just really snowballed from there really in Boston, like many cities and many communities are very tight knit. And so you kind of start to learn the people and, and they get to learn you and what you can offer. And, um, you kind of grow from there. And, um, and after playing in bands and being involved as a musician and a little bit of a, as a live engineer and a touring crew member, I really wanted to step. I knew that being in the studio was really where I wanted to be. And I really fashioned myself after people like Terry Date, who was an engineer, became producer, people like Bruce Fairbain that made really great big rock records, uh, people like Butch Vig that played in cool bands and also produced really iconic records. And so, I knew for me to um, kind of graduate and to get exposed to different techniques, I had to go to New York or Los Angeles. And, and in 1999, 2000, those were kind of, I felt, for lack of a better, it was probably London, New York, or Los Angeles. Nashville hadn't bubbled into really what it is today. So I felt like those were kind of my options. And, and I decided to come out to Los Angeles and, um, and you know, kind of get exposed to a different set of standards basically is what I would um, equate it to like coming from, you know, kind of um, not necessarily project studios, but maybe smaller genre specific recording studios in in the Boston area. And probably every city kind of has that. Um, I wanted to work in these big multi-room studios. Right. And, and at the time those still existed, (laughs) they're, they're, they're still around, but they're not as, they're not very common these days, uh, especially for rock music. But um, yeah, so that that's uh, kind of a long way of, of what I wanted to do. But yeah, the first thing is just, you know, getting that right internship. You know, I really lucked out in that. Yeah. I made myself available too. I mean, um, I, I think I, I showed up on the second day and, and they were like, oh, usually people don't show back up on the second day. So. <laughs> it's, it's crazy how like, kind of low the barrier or like low the bar is to some degree. And it's just like, you know, as long as you just show up and you're there and you're helpful, like you you can get your foot in the door. It's just really that easy. You just have to be determined enough to like actually show up the second day and the third day and fourth day and so on. Right. (laughs) I think that is, to be honest, like that, I think is the key to success. in a lot of things is like, I mean, it's funny, just show up, just showing up is the key to success. And, but, but what I mean by that too, is being consistent, right? When I see like people that are high achievers and that are like, you know, the top 1% of the 1% of what they do, um, it's not that they're, they could be tremendously gifted. I will say that they probably are and talented, right? I mean, Los Angeles and probably where you live and anywhere is like, I mean, you can throw a rock, you can hit a talented person. Talented isn't the issue. It's the it's the consistency of the work. It's the consistency of showing up and putting your head down because some days are just, um, they're not easy. Like inspiration doesn't come. And, um, and that's where like (laughs) just showing up and and doing something (laughs) is gonna, is actually, you know, it really is. That's because I think there's that initial spark of what you love. And then like, as you get into it, like it becomes a grind. And it's in that grind, right, that you learn to love the process and you have to learn to be consistent. And then you'll come out the other side looking like 
you, you might be the last person standing too, right? So you just might look like you're that much talented. You're like, no, I wasn't talented. I just, I just showed up again, you know, and I showed up again and I showed up again, you know, and I failed and I failed, but I kept coming back. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that grind that kind of weeds out the people who want it and the people who don't. And, you know, the grind isn't usually even that tough, you know, <laughs> really at the end of the day, it's like, you know, are you showing up? Are you putting in some hours at the studio? Are you working? Like some, some days are going to be harder than others, obviously, but, uh, but you just have to show up and you have to be consistent. And I think, you know, if, if you really want this bad enough, those tough days are just going to be something you brush off at the end of the day. You know, like you're like, cool, today was tough. Tomorrow will be better. You know, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, you just have to yeah. be optimistic about, you know, what you what you want and keep your eye on the prize and keep pushing forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's and there's a lot to unwrap about that, too. But um, I, I think part of like, you know. um. Yeah, I'll just say that. And, and, I, and I had like, I felt like I had a graduating class when I first come out. When I first came out to LA, I actually took a, a bit of a step back in my career because I was starting to, in Boston, like engineer my own records, right? So I was, supposed, I was technically like the first engineer on some of these records and you're running the sessions and then maybe you're bleeding into becoming the producer for the session or the record or the project. And when I came out to LA, you know, it's way more competitive and the techniques are more developed and there's much more technology, there's more money, um, and there's much higher stakes um, at play, right? Um, that I had to take a step back. And so when I took a step back, I worked at this multi-room facility called NRG Studios in North Hollywood. It still exists. Fantastic, fantastic room. And it's very much like uh, one of the studios at the heart of like, for lack of a better word, is all the new metal stuff, right? So Lincoln Park did a bunch of stuff there, like Biscuit, Corn. I think on my first day, Corn was in there. Um, so I had to take a step back, and I remember all the folks that I worked with. Um, we kind of felt like we were this kind of graduating class, and so a lot of a lot of the guys and gals that I worked with there, like you know, would get opportunities, and and then they would find out that it just wasn't for them, right? And so they stopped showing up, right? Whether they. Uh, um, quiet quitted before quiet quitted was a thing, but like, you know, they just kind of like weeded themselves out. Right. And so out of my graduating class, there's maybe like a few folks that are kind of still left doing something either audio related or music industry related. I think there's maybe like two or three of us left out of let's say 10. Right. Yeah. So that kind of just shows the, um, the attrition that happens in the industry. Yeah. Well, I like what you said earlier about the idea of like, hard assets and soft assets and how you, you know, you're conscious of building both of those and how they're both important for your career. Um, and, uh, you know, soft assets being obviously your skills and your networking and stuff. And um, you said something that kind of caught my attention, which was that you're actually continuing to, you're actually trying to finish your degree right now. So you actually went back. So after like all of the successes that you've had and all these awesome records that you're working on, why is it that you're going back to school now to finish that? Like, do you feel like there was something you were missing or, uh, is it just like a personal goal or something like that? Probably a little bit of both. There's a funny story related to that. And and that is, I think in 2015, um, and I don't know if, if you or some of your um, your audience would know this, but it was, it was a pretty popular thing, like Pensado's Place, which is one yep. of the first kind of web-based, right? So he started having these award shows. And so in 2015, um, I was, you know, luckily nominated and I won two of these awards. And I remember being at this ceremony on the, on the Sony lot. It was a really nice event. And uh, I believe the gentleman's name is Carl Beatty. He was the head of the music production and engineering um, 
tract or wing of Berkeley College of Music. And I believe he was either a professor, he might have been the head of the department at the time as well. But um, anyway, so he was there. And so I went up to him and said, Carl, you know, I just wanted you to know I was a Berkeley alumni. I didn't necessarily graduate. And it's always been one of my, um, you know, um, I don't know, regrets, I guess, for lack of a better word, that I never finished my college degree. But I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And, <laughs> and I thought he would just have this moment with me like, hey, congratulations on both your awards. Like, yeah, it seems like you have did well, blah, blah. But instead, he hard sold me on finishing my degree. And I was, I was kind of like, I was like, that kind of <laughs> didn't really feel great to be kind of like sold, you know? But I was like, oh, hats off. He's doing his job, right? But um, so I don't know. It was just something that, and, and as I kind of look at other opportunities in my life and my career, like I've always potentially wanted to go into teaching and, you know, and that's just a box you kind of have to check sometimes at the end of the day, like, do you have your bachelor's, right? Um, not every place has that, but I think it was just something that I, it was also a, a box I wanted to check personally. Um, and then I, you know, I've, I'm always curious of a person. I love learning. Um, it's been really cool to go back. And um, after 20 years and hopefully a little bit more maturity to look at the coursework and get what you can get out of it, which is really cool. Uh, it's been really refreshing. So yeah, it's a little bit of a personal um, goal. I have the opportunity and the means to do it. I'm very lucky in that res- regard. Um, and then I, I also want to see what maybe that can lead. Like I might want to get a master's or I might want to pursue something else. I might want to apply myself to to some teaching opportunities as well. So um, I just thought that that was kind of like, hey, let's let's do that. Let's check that box and and um, make sure that everything that you want to do in your career, you want to sh- make sure that you're, you're leaving as many forks in the road as possible so that you can, you know, pivot or switch. And if there's anything that we learned from the pandemic is how important that is, right? To amass and to be able to wear all these different hats. And the industry has definitely evolved us into that, right? Like I think in the late 90s, definitely in the 80s, and a little bit of the early 2000s, like when I wanted to come into the in this business, like I, you know, I think my goal and probably a lot of other folks' goals was like, I want to be Andy Wallace. I want to be the Lord Algies, like Chris or Tommy uh, and, and whoever were the, the real, you know, super mixers of the day, right? Well, that started to go away. And definitely, I feel like it has gone away now because now, like when you're asked to work on a project, you're asked to be a writer, an engineer, and and to mix like, you know, Tommy and Chris, right? If, if that's the lane that you're, the project is sitting in. So like, so now you, you're, you're ultimately having to wear all these different hats for a lot less money. Um, and so I think diversifying your skill set is something that you got to start doing from day one. Um, and I think the new generation that's kind of getting into that um, will will benefit from not knowing the siloed workflows that we had in the late '90s, right? So, um, so they're probably in a better situation to take advantage of the modern landscape of of what music productions become. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I always tell people that you know this isn't the music industry anymore. It's like it's the entertainment industry in a lot of ways, and you have to know everything, all the different areas of the entertainment industry to like survive as an artist and as an engineer yourself. Like you, you have to diversify your skills as well so that you can take advantage of all the opportunities that are there or that could potentially show up at some point. So you know, obviously, yeah, if you can, if you can have a successful career doing one thing, then sure. But that isn't always the case, and. 
for a lot of us, we have to kind of diversify our skills and our, our jobs that we do. And, um, you know, that's often kind of the way to make a living in the music industry these days. Yeah. And I think you, you brought up a great thing. It's, it's not just the music industry, it's the entertainment industry. I think, I think you need to even expand and ripple that out even further because like we're really competing for so much attention and bandwidth right now in, in the marketplace, right. As, as let's just say as content crit- creators, right. Like either you're a content creator or you're facilitating content creation. Right. And so like I view, um, you know, that demographic that let's just say for argument, it's 15 to 35. Right. And like, not am I, I'm not only competing for other like artists in that genre that I'm producing, but I'm like competing for what's streaming on, you know, Netflix, Yahoo, uh, Hulu, or all those streaming over the top platforms. But I'm also now competing for social media. I'm competing for app space. Right. So like, I'm really like at the end of the day of like, you're not only competing in the music space in the entertainment space, but like how people um, fill their time and what becomes the soundtrack for their life and, and their soundtrack for their life now might not be records anymore. It, it could be TikTok. It could be a snippet of a TikTok thing. It's like, so like you have to understand now that we're really competing for a lot of different um, bandwidth to tell stories or, or content and, and, and pipeline. And so you're really kind of battling that. So you're going to have to diversify and how you tell stories. And also why I bring that up is too, is like, you're going to have to start looking at emerging technologies and see how those apply. Right. And so case in point is immersive audio with uh, Atmos really kind of coming in to focus, let's say in the last 10 years, and maybe so in the last three years, um, really kind of bleeding into the music space. And, and I'm one of, I don't believe music necessarily belongs in, in, in immersive. Um, if it's a catalog track, but think of this, like diversifying yourself as a producer, because there's nothing wrong if you're going to sit down with an artist and you're going to produce a record where that artist maybe lives in the vinyl landscape, right? Like that, that's their, that's their niche, that's their lane, that's their market, that's their audience, their core demographic. Like that's, that's a different mindset than like, let's produce this record to be enjoyed in Atmos. You know, it's, 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 it's really a different process. And so, as a producer, you might in that breadth of a year might have to tackle those projects. And I think it's going to take a different type of skill set um, to like, if I knew that I was driving a project that's really going to land in vinyl and not going to necessarily like streaming will be an add on. Whereas usually it's like, we're going to make a record that's going to be digital, like CD or streaming and vinyls, the add on. Um, those are two different mindsets. And I would make, different creative and technical decisions from day one. Mm -hmm. Right. And the same thing is if I were going to explore the Atmos space and I have the right artist to do that and they're very cinematic, but I wouldn't necessarily take a catalog track and try to like Atmos that out because I think there's a lot of things that were baked into a stereo production that shouldn't be heard, you know, things that should be felt. And now we start extracting like, Oh, that organ part. Well, I never knew there was an organ part there. And now it's, it's hitting me from behind or above or whatever, right? It's now I'm engrossed in all these elements I never heard before. And I think, well, that was never the intent was to hear it. It was to feel it. I think it goes back to the way the Beatles, you know, really mixed in mono. That was their their impetus. That's what there was attention. And then they kind of left, you know, whether it was Jeff Emmerich or whomever to, to create the stereo. And they weren't necessarily overseeing the stereo as much, right? 
because that was their intent was to produce a song in mono. So um, a long way of me, a long way to a small house of saying, um, you know, diversify that skill set, but not necessarily apply that skill set to every project. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually reading an article this morning. Um, I, I, I didn't watch the full interview, but apparently Bob Clearmountain was already talking about how, you know, he anticipates that Atmos isn't going to be a thing that's going to catch on. And in the next five years, we're not going to be worried about it. But right now he's all in on Atmos and has like an amazing Atmos setup in his studio. And it's like kind of just goes to show you that, like, you know, even if you don't necessarily think that, like, it's something long term that you're going to stick with, like he's that's a perfect example of a big name engineer who's like diversifying his skills and learning Atmos. You know, even if just like for the next five years, he thinks he can keep busy with it. He's he's doing it, you know, and it's going to give him some work. So it's like kind of goes to show you that you just you do have to kind of just keep up with the times with what the trends are and adapt to things. And, you know, if those things go by the wayside at some point, who cares? You, you learned it, you you executed it, you got a job out of it, that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think Atmos and immersive will, will continue to survive, but it will be more for post-production, right? I, I think it'll be for cinema and, and I'll just kind of jump forward to like now in my new role at NBC universal, uh, you know, um, I will say that not all directors and content direct, you know, creators want immersive audio, right? Like I, I have some films that I'm helping support and overseeing um, the, you know, kind of deliverables where I, you know, I have uh, directors that would be like, you know what, if I could mix this in mono, I'll have mono, but I really don't want even five one and don't even talk to me about immersive. Right. So I, I think, I think immersive will continue. I don't necessarily think it, and for music, it will necessarily like take off as far as the in-home user and the AirBud user, you know, but um, it'll, it'll find its place. And, and I think there will be some cool projects that will will show themselves to be immersive. Um, and there might be some even artists and bands that will embrace that. But um, as far as, yeah, is it being, you know, it's going to end up being a little marketing tagline, you know, like DTS, Dolby Visions, like at most, but who's who really has a proper atmos who has a proper stereo setup you know let me ask you that <laughs> so <true>. right so. <laughs> yeah most most listeners out there are just still listening on their phones or like some yeah some bluetooth speaker or something like that you know so uh yeah we're still like a far way behind far ways behind people investing thousands of dollars to get an immersive setup in their house you know yeah. like, <laughs> and, and, and i think you bring up a really great point and without really bringing it up. And that is the marketplace dictates really what we create. Right. And as engineers, and I remember like being on, like being a part of AES and being a part of um, different committees within the recording Academy. And we would talk about these things about audio fidelity. Like what is it, what does high definition audio mean? What should we be archiving and, and producing like 96 K 192 48, like what, what's acceptable. Right. And, um, and I think one of the conversations that came up, and it was a, an AES keynote speech with um, Alan Parsons that gave it. And, um, you know, he had said that, you know, he really wanted to see and was very much, I mean, he was talking to a crowd of audio engineers. So, of course, everyone was like, we want to hear great fidelity and streaming. And I argued the point for anyone who would listen, like, I don't think the marketplace cares, right? Like, look at title. Title never went off. Um, Neil Young's thing project, I forget what that was called, never really took off. Like at the end of the day, like the marketplace, if you're going to have a pipeline of digital audio, right? Like Sirius XM, where you only have so much bandwidth and you can cut that up into four high definition channels or a hundred low 
fidelity channels, people are going to want the choice, right? People are going to want the quantity over the quality. And that's just the nature of what the marketplace dictates. And so we can bang our heads and say like, you know, fidelity, this and that. And I think it's our job to, to kind of be stewards of, of, of great fidelity. But at the end of the day, like what's appropriate for the artist, the song and the marketplace, that's always going to dictate where I go. Right. And, and, um, so it, it, you can't, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say other than I, you know, the, really the marketplace and how people I'd rather somebody listen to somebody's song and story and have access to it, then like put the barrier there and say, well, you have to be sitting at home in a stereo field or in a proper environment to hear this and you have to pay X amount of dollars. Right. I, I, I'd rather, I'd rather the story get told and heard than not. Yeah. I, I think that that's a really good point. And uh, I, I mean, I, I think that's just how music has been for the longest time. So to think that we're going to change that and make everyone adapt to this high fidelity sound, like nobody cares about it except for audio engineers. You know, we're the only ones that like listen to music super critically like this and like actually really care about it being like the, the highest quality. You know, yeah, there's a couple audio files out there and they like to listen to their music, you know, at high qualities. But the majority of people out there don't care. It's just like catchy song. Good beat. Yeah. And I do too. And I, I think it goes back to like not necessarily like a great sounding record doesn't necessarily mean it's a great song or a successful record and a successful record doesn't necessarily have to be a great sounding record right there's plenty of punk rock records where you know the hi-hat's louder than the vocal and i still love it um you know fidelity equals good isn't necessarily the thing but it also is fun like you know i will collect vinyl and i will collect a record across all spectrums of vinyl and cd and and decide really what i think that record sounds best and resonates best with me for me and, and on my systems and so it is fun to to go down and do, but at the end of the day, like, um, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's we're I want to set ourselves up for as much enjoyment as possible and not like paint ourselves in a corner. So of course, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I did want to dive into some of the uh, studio stuff that you do and going a little bit more into um, you know some of the projects that you worked on. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when you first were working in studios. I heard that you got into it primarily like doing a lot of guitar teching and stuff like that. Is that, is that true? That was, yeah, that was kind of a good um, entry point for me to get into the scene, get to meet people. Um, and so one of the first records that major label records that I was involved with was um, um, the label was Sony 550 and they had signed this band called Bolt Upright. Um, they were based out here in Los Angeles. They were very much at the precipice of like the whole rap rock thing. Like, um, and they, uh, went out to Western Massachusetts or mid Massachusetts, um, to a studio called Longview Farms. And they worked with a producer based out of New York named Steve Thompson. Steve Thompson was super famous like record producer and more of a mix engineer part of a team from the 80s and 90s um steve thompson and michael barbiero and so they mixed appetite for destruction they mixed um justice for all um you know their list of credits and records that they worked on is you know very numerous and so um i think he had just finished producing steve thompson had just finished producing cornfall the leader um so he was kind of coming off of that success and um and so I worked on that record as a guitar tech and that's where I really 
really fell in love with with record producing and and seeing like a proper record producer separate from a proper recording engineer. The recording engineer was a gentleman by the name of John Goodmanson, um, who at the time, I think his big record at the time was this Harvey Danger record that he had produced and engineered. Um, anyway, so to get to see those two guys work and and really have a, a clear definition of those roles and those skill sets and what's asked of them, it was just, it was super eye-opening. Um, I was very young in my career. So, you know, you know, it was, they were kind of more doing me a favor by having me involved in the project. But um, so, yeah, that was kind of my first entry into it. And I, I want to say I learned a lot, like as far as, um, you know, some, some techniques, but seeing like a proper, uh, that was the first time like working on a Neve console. Um, not that I was working on it, but just being in that, that environment, um, working on that was a two inch 24 track record, but seeing like we had, they had the budget for multiple reels of tape and, and what was called making a slave tape. Right. So like you would track your drums and once you get your drum edited on, on that two inch, you would maybe, you know, bounce an eight channel or a two channel version of those drums to another reel. And that way, when you're doing guitar overdubs, you're not like going through the tape and and kind of destroying the the, the drum sound because the more like you rewind and put the tape through of the heads the the frequency response from both the high and the low end starts to kind of you know um kind of go away over time and so obviously if like you're punching on a guitar part and like you know you could probably punch in on a part hundreds of times and throughout the day maybe you're rewinding that tape you know thousands of times you can only imagine the kind of wear and tear that it happens and so to see a production that had that like okay here's a drum take let's keep those reels we're only going to use those reels when we go back into mixing and we lock up the two machines when we mix and we'll have you know the pristine sounding drums as it were so um seeing a production at that level was was super eye-opening and like made me truly fall in love with that is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life, right? Was being a record producer. Seeing Steve Thompson work, um, I was like, yeah, that's no brainer. <laughs> Get paid a bunch of money and wake up at noon and listen to music. Like, hell yeah, sign me up. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that Like, that was your way in. And, and again, I, I guess this comes back down to that topic of diversifying your skills. And, you know, that was just an extra skill set you had, like working on guitars. And, you know, it, it got you in the door. And, got you some work as a result of that. And then you got to meet other people and network. And like, so I think that's a really cool uh, approach because yeah, so many people would just try to get in like the, the traditional way of, you know, I want to just be an engineer and I'm going to just, you know, do it this way only. Um, I'm curious to know in your experience of guitar teching, um, I know in like the, in the drum teching world, like there's a, a lot of drum techs I know will say that like you learn a lot about like tuning the instruments for the microphones and that kind of stuff. Cause you know, things will always sound different under the mic. Did you find that there was anything like that when it, as it relates to guitars? Like, was there any, um, anything that you learned that would like help get a better tone, for example, uh, while you were teching? Yeah, I think, um, early on in my career, I didn't have the the nuance to it, but then I, you, you start developing some of the nuance. Yeah, you're completely right. Like, you know, drum teching, you're kind of tuning for, for under the micro microscope of the microphone as it were. But when it comes to the guitar, you really have to understand the player. And the player, you really have to, you, so you have to understand what that player is trying to do, how they play and what you're trying to accomplish, right? So like if you're um, working with a younger player that maybe has either a heavy left hand or a heavy right hand, right? Um, 
you might, and you're trying to work on a song that's in drop C or maybe even below, right? You're going to have to start gearing all that stuff towards understanding that he might go sharp very easily. So what I would do is maybe put in, put him on guitars that maybe have a longer um, scale length, right? So the string has more tension. Uh, obviously, you would put a thicker gauge string on. Um, maybe you would tune the guitar slightly flat, knowing that once it's in their hands and they kind of rip on it, it's going to get sharp. In, in, in tune, right? So th those are the kind of the subtleties that you start getting into as far as the intonation. You really start diving into the, the personalized intonation of the player and what you're trying to accomplish. What's been one of the greatest like godsends probably in the last you know decade has been Evertune systems. Of course. And that stuff is just awesome. Like that is like because when you're working on guitar-oriented music and you're in like that the grind of um, guitar overdubs, and especially if you're working with a band that's very layered in their sound, you know, you're, you're probably, let's say if you're working 10 hours, like you're probably spending six hours like tuning <laughs> sometimes, or at least it feels like it. And maybe three hours is just tuning the, the G string uh, or what, what traditionally is the G string. Um, so Evertune systems, like, man, they made the day go by really fast. Right. And you can set them up to do a lot of different things you can set them up to, to bend and stuff but like if i'm trying to get like the meat and potatoes of a track and there's not much you know um bending in that rhythm track like oh my god it, it's it, it helps so much and so one of the tricks i did was i took a baritone guitar and i would tune it up to a regular tuning so let's i usually actually kept it in drop c because that way i could i could capo it and get it to obviously um you know, drop D very quick uh, and drop C sharp very quick. And I had to play with the string gauges because if you take a normal baritone guitar and you, the baritone string gauge, I think is, is a set of 14s and the baritone is usually tuned to fifth down. I think it's in B, B to B. Um, so if you take that and you try to tune it up to drop D or drop C, like you're going to pop string. So you kind of have to mess around with the string gauges. And I, I remember coming up with some string gauges that worked. And, um, and so that was, that was a really good trick of getting a really nice fundamental in the rhythm guitar, because off of that, everything's going to be, you know, based off the fundamental rhythm track. And so I, when it came to guitar heavy music, I always felt that the guitars dictated what the bass were doing. And sometimes the bass were just, was doing an extension, uh, an octave down of what the harmonic, you know, one, the harmonic rhythm and the harmonic structure of what that rhythm guitar is doing. So I would do rhythm guitars first um, and maybe even do a few overdubs and then put on the bass. And then, you know, understand one, especially when you're dealing with like heavy saturation and low tuning, now I have to create space for the bass and that might sit above or might even sit below where we're going. So it really helped me with finding out the sonic footprint of where the bass should be. And also, like, now I could really hear the fundamental tuning differences, right? Because if, if the bass player was playing a little sharp, it you would really hear it rub against those rhythm guitars. Um, and another trick when you start getting into saturated sounds and low tuning, when you're really starting to have a hard time hearing note definition, is during pre-production, you could sit there and actually MIDI note with piano notes 
um, just the fundamental, right? So let's say, you know, for argument, like you're just in the key of, of C, like you're in drop C. So you're going to be in C minor a lot. Um, you know, I would just MIDI program, like if, you know, C, G, you know, wherever the, the harmonic structure was. So I had a pure sine wave to always tune reference, right? So if we really, we would really, as we start stacking, you would really have a pure sine wave to kind of hear the beats against what's going on with the bass and the guitars and all the other stuff, because it gets, it gets so messy so quick. And, and, and sometimes your ears are blown out. And if you're again, wearing a lot of different hats and you're engineering, you're producing and all that stuff, like, um, you know, sometimes some of the tuning stuff might not be in focus right away. And by setting yourself up for future, you know, success, by taking that time to program the harmonic structure with a pure sine wave, whether it's piano or, or sine wave. Um, I think it's a Bob rock trick, by the way. Um, yeah, I've never heard anyone say that before, but it's such a cool, cool idea. I think, I think Bob did it. Um, I had worked with, um, a band, uh, unfortunately the name is, is, uh, basically they were canceled. There's a band called lost profits and the singer, unfortunately, um, did some, horrible 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 things that band's no longer but um yeah bob had i think had done that with them and then that band told me about it and i thought oh that that makes sense that's cool like why didn't i think of that? that's a very simple thing to do right so as a producer you're 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 setting yourself up for some future success but you're also really learning it forces you to learn the harmonic structure of the band right you know so that's amazing yeah that, that's a that's a very cool technique and uh I also love that you mentioned the Evertune guitars and it seems like everyone I've had on the podcast that's, that's used the Evertune guitar just swears by it, you know, like that's used the bridges. Uh, it just swears by it and says the exact same thing that it's like, you know, it gives them half of their, half of their day back just because you're not worrying about tuning. Right. So uh, definitely a, a cool technology out there that is making life easy and time is money. Right. So if you can save that time, not having to sit around tuning, I'm, I'm sure it keeps you fresh too. And your ears don't get burnt out from hearing just like bands tuning up all day too. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'll preface it that like, you know, there is like a great, like, it's great to be in tune, right? Like, and, and what happens is as, and this definitely happened in the sixties as artists, especially the Beatles, like when you started having the songwriters become the performers, it wasn't necessarily that you were getting the best performers, right? And so that really is where that kind of grew from, right? Because before then you would have like your songwriters and then you might have your wrecking crew of musicians that were just super ace musicians, right? And knew how to play in the studio. Um, but when you start melding the, the, the creator and the songwriter with the performer, you might not have a developed performer, right? You might have someone that's way more developed as an artist, but isn't developed as a musician, right? Um, maybe case in point, the talking heads in a lot of ways. Um, but so, but I will say this, just because it's in tune doesn't make it great or better. And so my case in point is this, and is I remember watching some stuff with, um, audio slave and, and then later with Chris Cornell. And so when, when, when audio slave was around, I think they sometimes did some rage against the machine songs with Chris singing. And then afterwards, Chris went on to do a solo career and he did some full band stuff. And he had like super gnarly A-list um, like session guys in his band. Right. And I remember like listening to it. It's like, yeah, it sounds good. It sounds really good. Like two guitar players playing like Rage Against the Machine riffs or, or um, Audio Slave riffs. Like 
it sounds full, it sounds in tune, but then I would go back and listen to like Tom Morello doing it and it's out of tune and it's way more dangerous and it's way more rock and roll. And it's like, that's the vibe that you want. Right. Sure. So I will <laughs> say that like sometimes being in, you know, it really, you got to be um, conscious of the, again, the, the, the record you're making, right? Like I think if you're making something that's more white strips, white stripes driven, then yeah, maybe being a little bit out of tune might give that a little bit of excitement. And I think even, um, sometimes some of that rage against the machine stuff is a little bit sharp and it gives like, I don't know, it gives some excitement to it too, you know? Absolutely. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I did want to talk about, cause obviously you do work on a lot of guitar driven music and you know, like that, uh, that's kind of the genre that, you, that you're known for. And, and it sounds like, you know, having had that background in guitar teching and stuff like that, it kind of makes sense. Um, you know, as far as getting great sound and guitar tones and, and sounds, um, do you have any like go-to miking setups that you like to use or anything like that? Yeah, I, I will say that great tone comes from great sources. And I think um, great sources don't necessarily mean amazing guitar amps and guitars. It really means the player's hands. And I think they'll go back to drums and everything and, and knowing how to move air and, and really how to hit hit the strings, both with your right and left hand. As I got into really making heavy guitar-oriented music, like the, the thing that was the biggest um i think secret about being a great guitar player is your picking hand your right hand that really to me um i I don't think it's as emphasized as it should be in one learning of guitar um but uh the mastery and those that are like amazing like the james hepfields and um you know the avenge folks like those guys they really have a developed right hand that's very good um, so that's where the great sound comes from is from the hands. Um, but if, to answer your question for, for, for miking techniques, I've always, my ear is always for the most part been driven towards a 30 watt Celestian speaker, um, like a green back or a vintage 30, as I think they're called now. Um, and I was always, I really, it took me a second to understand the, the combination of the 57 and the Royer 121, but those, that combination is really would be the go-to. And I think also you have to understand really quick the history of the Royer 121 and why it became kind of the de facto standard coupled with the, with the 57. I mean, you can get away with the 121 as well. Um, was the, the Royer 121 came into production and into invention really at the perfect storm of digital audio. So we were starting to shy away from making records on tape and, and all the, the beautiful compression and the, um, the EQ curve that tape brought to audio production. And we were starting to make records into Pro Tools. And that was very much an unforgiving digital um, photograph of what's going on. And that was because technology was growing, budgets were shrinking. It's, you start getting the perfect storm, right? And uh, what was great about the 121 was that it was the first um, and maybe only ribbon microphone that can take high SPL, right? Sound pressure levels. And so putting an, a ribbon microphone that maybe had a softer high end um, kind of was offering the benefits of tape without having tape and being able to have that microphone or the ribbon can really sit back in the magnets without um, busting and fraying 
it was a perfect storm. Like that, that was the perfect microphone for those of us making digital rock records, right? It, it offered us that sense of warmth and, um, and harmonic distortion that we wanted that we were missing out of tape. And so, um, I think that's the reason why that combination really works for me and why I really embraced it. Um, I was really lucky to be able to sit with the folks over at Royer and they kind of explained that and kind of gave me the perspective. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, um, what a perfect storm. We were going digital and now you have a ribbon microphone that was a little bit warmer, but also like you could put in front of a kick drum, you could put in front of a screaming 412 without it busting. Like, you couldn't do that with, uh, you know, uh, ribbon mics before that. So um, so yeah, that, that's my go-to. That was a lot what I used on Avenged, um, and, and mostly what I did, you know, but, um, yeah, I, I, you know, and then you kind of have to play with, um, the speaker placement and that, that is a little bit of an art too. And, um, what I would kind of do to place them is once you start putting multiple microphones and multiple amps, like you just start opening yourself up to phase issues. Um, but, um, I would get a cabinet going and screaming, like maybe you get a cabinet, turn it, turn the amp, um, put the high voltage to the amp, right. Take it off standby and maybe put a pedal on. So you're getting that like white noise, like just kind of building out of the amplifier, take some headphones, take the microphones, cue the, um, the microphones through the headphone and start playing with it. And you'll start hearing your EQ curve of center cone being very bright and how you kind of move away and how it kind of softens out. And then you can do the same with your, your other microphone, your 121 and maybe put on another cone and get it similar and then flip the phase on both of them. And the more that they, those two microphones go away in the headphones as you flip the phase really means how tight of it that it is. And so you can flip the phase and then start tweaking on them and where they start to null out the most is really probably going to be the most in phase of those microphones will be. And so you'll do away with any kind of phase issues later down the line. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that technique. And uh, it makes total sense to do it that way. Um, you did mention kind of in passing there, like uh, the idea of using multiple amps or multiple cabinets. Is, is that something you frequently do with a lot of your guitar production? Um, it was something that I did often. Um, I, I will say for, for all intensive purposes, the last few records that have been very guitar centric, like my non-point record, um, trying to think of some other records, but non-point comes to mind. Um, uh, cause I just saw those guys in New York. Um, I will say I haven't turned on a guitar amp in many years. Uh, the Kemper <laughs> has really, um, taken that place, but, um, to go back to your, to your question. Yeah. Like I, I would, I would use different amplifiers because I felt like different amplifiers didn't necessarily get the whole picture of what I wanted. Right. Like you might have something that's very saturated, like the, you know, the traditional Mesa boogie dual and triple, triple rec sound. Um, I, I tended to lean more towards the, the Bogner Ubershaw sound, which is very, in a way kind of similar, right. That very preamp saturated uh, distortion. Um, and then to add a little bit of mid range and note identity, you might want to go with something like a classic 800 or something that's not as driven. And when you blend those two, it's really beautiful. And so, um, so, okay. So now you have two amplifiers, two cabinets, and then two microphones each, right? So now I have for one sound, four inputs, and you can either print all four inputs into Pro Tools. If you're working on a, um, an analog console, 
you can you can bust those down you know and you can blend how much you want of each amplifier and you can really tweak the sound really well um i never really figured out a great way to do it in pro tools some people would go through oxens and then into a track and i, I never felt like the phase was really great in that but uh, uh the important tool in making a multi-amp system work is um a kind of a matrix device uh radial makes the jd7 that i like a lot um and then there's a company in los angeles called little labs he made a thing called the the pcp it was called it was it stands for professional the cheesy pedal interface uh and that was a three-way um splitter and so what that gives you is um with both products and there's probably other products on the market that that do this as well it gives you isolated trans transformer isolation between so you plug your guitar in and it would isolate ground hum between the the two um amplifiers you'd still have to get your electrical um ground loop correct but um and then it has phase buttons right and then you can turn turn on and off each amplifier but the most important thing was having the phase button between amplifiers so you might have two two amplifiers and maybe they're just wired um to pull and push differently and so you know you might have your bogner out of phase with your marshall and you just hit that one button and it flips both amplifiers into to be in phase a really powerful tool um and then it can split into your tuner and like into your di and i always ran a di as well um especially for like saturated rhythm guitars uh not necessarily that i wasn't confident in the sounds i was getting but um it enabled me to get see a transient when i was editing so like when you record a very um saturated guitar it's very compressed as well and so the the waveform just tends to be blocked right um you don't see that that transient but then when you couple that with the di now i very much see where where the player initiated the hit and how long that note goes for it makes very quick editing and comping um so even if i wasn't utilizing the the di for future use um i was utilizing it right away to kind of to edit to punch in just to be more efficient in 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 uh the way i worked that makes sense yeah a little hot tip for those yeah for sure <laughs> i i totally use the eyes the exact same way and i think it's like one of those things that a lot of people don't think that they they need because obviously they're not hearing it on the record but it's like it's just another little cheat trick for for yeah. post-production and helping your life go a lot easier and smoother um when it comes to editing and getting tight sounding guitars, do you rely a lot on editing to really tighten things up? Like are you using like elastic audio and that kind of stuff to, to tighten things up? Or do you tend to focus on getting it really locked down during the tracking stage as best as possible? I think a little bit of both. I never had much luck with elastic and it depends on the track that I wanted. Um, yeah, I, I would probably get the player to kind of get something that I really liked. And um, and if I was making something that was gridded, you know, um, no shame in my game. I, I would find I would find something and fly it around, you know, and then I would maybe find the double that worked really well and and you know where there wasn't any push or pull. Um, I would move some stuff around, right? Um, and um, I would also do some more heavy gating as well, you know, especially with some of the start stop stuff. Um, you you know sometimes like the amps and even if you're using a gate, you know sometimes gates just like will you know, the, the unintended consequence of using a gate is like, okay, you get, you get the noise out of there, but you also get some of the high end and some of the, the, the high mids as well, like get affected as well. Right. So, um, sometimes I would be either remove the gate or be 
lighter than I want to be on the gate, knowing that in post I can just like clean it up, you know, mm-hmm. um, at the end of the night and just, um, make it a little bit, um, that much tighter if that's what the track was asking for, which in a lot of this, the stuff that I work on, um, kind of wants to be that way, you know, really does want to have that kind of mach- machine like power behind it. So. Yeah. Very cool. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about in regards to your productions is your vocals. And especially when you listen to like the Avenged Sevenfold records that you've worked on, like the vocals sound incredible and they, they definitely contribute to making the mixes feel really big and wide because uh, of all these different vocal layers that are that are in there. So when it comes to working on vocals and getting them sounding really full, do you have any go-to tips there? Yeah, I think um, one of my, I'll, I'll just say this, one of my favorite vocal um, records that I produced, I'm super proud of what I was able to accomplish with, with the vocals, um, is a band called My, Tickle, My Ticket Home. And it was the record, I, I think it's called Thrush. I forget the title of the record. It's the one record I did for Universal for them. Anyways, uh, but to, to answer your question, I think the, the biggest thing for, to me as a tracking engineer, that the biggest secret is to make sure that your playback and what the artist is listening to in the headphones is just stellar, is just next level, right? I want all the compression, the effects. I want it to sound as finished as possible as I can. Um, and then I would play with some headphone choices, right? The Sony 7506s are very bright. And sometimes that's what the artist wants to hear, a very bright, you know, uh, sharp sound. If you're doing very elongated vocal sessions, that that might wear on the, on the performer's ears, right? And so I would go to maybe a 770, uh, a buyer, my uh, headphone. So really giving um, some empathy to the headphone mix for your for your vocalist is super important really take the time to develop proper headphone mix give them a little bit of control as well like i would do uh normally i would probably give them like a music a stereo music track a stereo effects track and then maybe probably a couple of vocal tracks one that was always hot right so like that vocal one is always what you're going to be singing and if you're doubling something or if you want to hear what other things are in there listen to vocal two and you can you can tweak that how you like so give them don't don't be super like make them a mixer just give them simple rotary pots um that just give them a little bit of control and a little bit of um but try to do your internal mix that you're sending them um you know take take some some thought into that and there's a few different ways to do it and then the third option i would give them is what i was listening to and so you could quickly mute their mix and give them a mix. And that helped me with when I was doing gang vocals or like quickly stacking something really quick where I had to move very, very fast. And I want them to hear the stack. And I don't want to keep switching like, oh, what's that? Can you bring that down? So like, hey, listen to my mix. We're going to stack this up very quick. And then trust me, at the end, it'll, it'll be, you know, especially when I'm doing stacked harmonies or um, kind of the stacked ahs and oohs, um, especially that we did with Avenge. I did a lot with the Treyu and this band, Hell or High Water. Um, so yeah, so those were kind of be the monitoring choices I had. And then I really always loved the manly reference cardioid. I thought that was such a great sounding record, uh, microphone. I never used it with, with Matt from Avenged. Um, but afterwards, after my tenure with them, that was a microphone I bought. And I would probably say like 
95% of the time, everybody loved that microphone and sounded great on that microphone. And in mix, it was like having track on that microphone. It was like, you never really had to EQ it. You know, I would just maybe um, low filter some stuff out of it. But um, as far as any, you know, top end bite, it was just always there. That's one of my favorite go-tos. Um, and then I'm pretty lucky. I have a pretty legendary vocal chain that um, I, th- I feel like I'm the only guy that has it. And um, I have a really great stay level um, from the fifties that um, David Kolka revitalized for me. And it's a, um, it's a Veramu compressor. So it's, it's much like in the realm of um, well, like the manly very or um, like a, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, the Rolls Royce of compressors. Anyways, it's a two base compression. And so 6386 is the um, Fairchild is the, is the compressor I'm thinking about. Um, so it's very based on the quality of the tube that you have in that. And, I, and I'm pretty lucky that I have a really great 6386 in that and that. And it just sounds like butter. And you can slam that thing and it just sounds really good. And then um, an auction, I bought Jerry Finn, who was, a, who was a really great record producer. I bought one of his like way back TG2 EMI pre's. And so like the Manly, the TG2 going into the the stay level is just it's pretty solid chain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really great. And again, like the stay level I have is just like, people know me by that. Like, Oh, he he's the stay level guy. Or, you know, like I have producers <laughs> that I've engineered for like, Hey, can I rent that or something like that? So, um, th- that's like my one piece of gear that I was pretty lucky to collect. That's my one thing. If the studio is burning down, I'd grab, you know, <laughs> everything else can get replaced, but I love I'll it. grab that. I love it. Um, as far as coming up with like vocal layers and harmonies and doubles and all that kind of stuff, is that something that a lot of the bands you work with tend to have flushed out before they enter the studio? Or is that something that you tend to focus on working out with them? Um, a little bit of both. I think some, um, like Avenged, they very much either have it worked out or there are working them out. And then some artists haven't been exposed to that. And so I will expose them to those techniques. Um, so it's a, it's a mixed bag. And then some artists, um, will want a harmony and not necessarily, um, know what it is or, and so I'll start giving them some of the basic third and fifth ones, you know, um, and at least get the ball rolling. I remember when I was doing the, uh, my ticket home record, like we really wanted to explore some of the harmonies and like, you know, like here are the obvious ones. Right. And I'd give it to them and, and then they're like, no, we don't like that. And they, they're more like into kind of the Alice in Chains kind of, you know, parallel harmonies and maybe um, even some forts and stuff like that. And they came out with some really cool shit, but I think it's a matter of exposing them to it and getting them going. Um, and then how to place those in the stereo field and that's really somewhere you're going to pull from pop music and and uh, hip-hop a lot about being very aggressive in the panning of them and not being afraid to like in the chorus do a double triple and hard pan those left and right like hard like hard pan those where they're really weird um and so being bold about how you place those harmonies um i love doing low octaves with with artists as well and i always get artists that are a little bit unsure or, or you know what to do with that but um it's also when you do present those ideas about like some of these left of center whether you're you wanting to get a, a falsetto out of them or a low octave like almost like a talking um matt from avenge does that quite a bit um almost like a talking vocal um you know giving them the um 
that sense of vulnerability, you know, in the room, like creating a situation where they're comfortable enough to fuck up and, and be vulnerable and, and uh, make mistakes will enable them to get the idea done, you know, so you kind of sometimes have to cheerlead that out of them. Um, and, and, and it's very different than cheerleading a drummer or a guitar player through a take. You know, you have to be very sensitive. I think that I think it's a very vulnerable uh, process. Um, so I think just being, you know, tied into that, like creating a good vibe, you know, um, whether it's in the lighting, the air conditioning, whatever you can try to do. Um, those are important things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it. it's I always say that, like working with vocalists is one of the hardest things because it's not like a drummer where you just tell us like hit, hit a little harder, you know, like their, their instrument is literally their voice and yeah. all singers are self-conscious of themselves. And, you know, it's like, it's not just that they're dealing with like getting the notes. They're also dealing with telling their story and feeling that they might be judged by their lyrics or whatever, you know, and like they're, or they're, you know, they're, they're often afraid to admit their story sometimes too. And, you know, put it out there. So it's a, it's definitely a delicate game and uh, yeah, making sure that they're very comfortable is super important, obviously. So, yeah. 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 So yeah, I did want to ask you about kind of the broadcast world and obviously you've had your experience there with uh, working on last call with Carson Daly. Um, I'm curious to know, like, what was that process like? Cause you had mentioned earlier that you kind of had this, it, it was a kind of a different approach to, to working on music uh, than your traditional studio gig. So what was that process like? Yeah. So, so the process was, you know, for our show is very unique in the sense that the artist didn't come to like, like in the sense of like Saturday Night Live or Jimmy Fallon, or at the time it was Jay Leno. Um, you know, you would have the artist come into um, your studio. They would play one song. You probably would have like maybe two or three times at most or one time to do it. And then it goes to air that night. So with Last Call with Carson Daly, we actually went to the artist's show. So the artist was on tour and we had happened to connect with them, let's say, playing at the Fonda. I'm just thinking of the Fonda because it's right down the street from me right now. But um, And we would go to their show. So it's their audience. It's their show. Cool. It's their pacing. It's their production. It's their crew. And we're, and or I am and my crew are gently inserting ourselves into their day and being a fly on the wall. So that was the process of capturing and then I would multi-track that either through Pro Tools. Um, I ran um, two-track backups off a separate system um, at front of house. Um, and then I, I tried different systems as well, like sometimes bringing a Pro Tools system in, in venues, whether you're inside, outside, traveling a lot can you know, be really weird. I ended up finding this company out of England called Joko that really created a great, really solid system but it wasn't it didn't have a graphical interface it just recorded broadcast waves um and so then you would import that into you know there were time stamps so you just bring that into pro tools it added another step but uh the footprint and the um stability it gave was really really key and so i would bring that into um, my studio and then the first thing i would do is create a rough mix right and sometimes i would take the front of house lock that up with with the multi-track and take the front of house mix and say, here's your rough mix, right? Mm -hmm. Send that out to the artist, say, what songs out of your set would you like to for us to broadcast? Here are the ones that we think we would like to broadcast. Obviously the single, your you know, this, that, but then would give the artist a few choices. And then that rough mix would start going to the editors and they would start editing picture, right? Because they would have to edit like a, a seven to nine camera shoot and put that together. 
So they, they couldn't wait for me to final mix. Um, they would take the rough mix. I would maybe two pop that at the, at the top, meaning put a, um, you know, a, a brief, um, one K tone to lock picture to, to what will become the sound, um, as those two tracks work independently. And then I would go in and start depending on the artist, depending on the genre, depending quite honestly on, on the clout of the booking as well. I would start really diving into it, right? Tuning vocals, layering samples, <laughs> trying to really bring out as much dimension and color into what that performance was, where those songs lived uh, on the record, and what they were trying to accomplish live. Because some artists want complete reproductions of the record, meaning like an artist like M83 basically said, make a sound like the record. And when you look at their input list, it was very much, you know, geared towards that, right? A lot of backing tracks, a lot of, you know, um, stuff of that nature. And then you would maybe have like a punk rock band, um, like waves or something where, okay, that's, that can be loose and that can sound a little more garagey, right? Cause that's, that's their lane, that's their genre. Um, and so it was really like, from like a Monday through Friday, I could, I could mix an electronic thing, a garage punk thing, a hip hop thing, and maybe a singer songwriter acoustic thing. And so every day you were trying to immerse yourself into a different lane and genre and try to be a fan of that. And I would try to really get involved into understanding the artist. And for the most part, having been, you know, being a, a lover of music and, and, and really, you know, being obsessed with everything, I would tend to know the artist and I would actually tend to know the producer and the engineer who worked on those records. And so sometimes I would reach out and like, Hey, I'm working on this. Um, do you want to be a part of it? Do you have any tips or tricks? What, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was the challenge I think. Um, and then you really had to like some nights you just, you're up against a deadline too. So it was like, this is not the best mix, but it's got to go right? We have to go to air. So um, it really, over seven years or eight years of doing it, it really helped me uh, develop a gut feeling of like, making quick decisions and like, okay, this is this is what's, this is where I'm going to go, right? There's no turning back. And I think this is right. Um, and there, there are times where you just completely knock it out of the park and you feel great. And then there's times where, and I'll be honest, the majority of the time where you're just like, damn it, like, there, there's so much against you, right? There's like performance, there's um, you know, time. Um, so, and then there's also the idea that like what the record was is not what the band is live. I think some totally. of the biggest compliments I've had in those was like, um, I, I forget the, it doesn't matter what the band, I forget the, what the bands, even if I do remember, I wouldn't say who they are, but I remember doing this one band, I went to air and then like seeing the opening band later in the year or something like, and they're like, Hey, did you do, did you mix that? I go, yeah. He goes, holy shit. Like that is not what they sound like live. <laughs> like, yeah. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I imagine that that would definitely be a challenge, it's, especially because you have the time constraints, but then, you know, trying to replicate an album sound, but using live tracks, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of these artists had like, albums that had been heavily sampled and stuff like that. And so it's like, how do you find those same sort of tones to make it work? Right. Like that would be quite the challenge with every project I imagine. 
Yeah, and, and I de I developed a little bit of a technique for tuning live vocals because tuning live vocals with all the the spillage and bleed um, was very different, especially if the artist was running um, uh, was it on in ears um, or the drummer the drum set it was a tight small stage and the drum set was literally in front of the microphone like you know the singer's microphone right so like mm -hmm. so there's a there's a lot of um, challenges in um, how to edit a live performance. But I think the key thing with that when I was doing it is you roll on everything. You roll on soundtrack, uh, on soundtrack, you roll on everything, right? And so what happened, I was working with the Crystal Method. They were doing kind of an anniversary of one of their records and they had all the different, the original singers come back and sing those tracks. Um, and so I rolled on everything in soundcheck and when it came to live for the one song that we wanted to broadcast, the singer completely like fucked up the first verse you know, like saying the third verse, oh. the first verse lyrically. And so um, the boys and, and Chris and Mother were like, hey, can you, what can you do about this? Like, well, I rolled on sound on soundcheck and you guys are to a click. So I'll just take that vocal from soundcheck because it's correct. Pop it into that performance for the verse. And then the rest of the song is correct. So, you know, those are, those are kind of cool things. And then I just told the camera editors, don't do close-ups. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you do that? <laughs> go to wide shots on that verse or, or yeah. So um, we had to kind of be creative with that go to slow-mo cuts or whatever to kind of like, you know, to get the lip sync correct. But um, the, the, the folks that worked on that show were, oof, they were super talented, super talented. That's super amazing. Talented. That's very cool, man. Yeah. I, I definitely, have a lot of appreciation for people who work in live sound and broadcast and stuff like that. Cause often you're working really quickly and you know, it's very unpredictable. And especially if you're mixing a live performance, you're dealing with so many different elements that you're not having to fight in the studio, um, yeah. you know, bleed and performance. And, you know, some people just being exhausted and not being able to like sing their lyrics clearly cause they're out of breath and stuff like that. You know, there's so many different factors that go into it. And, and you bring up a great point because like Los Angeles and New York are very, you know, industry heavy cities. And so like when you have an artist coming in, like, you know, playing that show at the Fonda isn't the only thing on their list, right? Like they have all their A&R folks and maybe their agents and, and their management are out. And probably that morning they did um, KCRW or some other radio thing. So it's like their day has just been stacked, right? And maybe they've been partying too. So by the time it comes to the last song of the night, which is the single that we want to air, you know, that person has not been allowed that opportunity to be in the best form, right? Because they've just been ran, ran ragged. Um, so yeah, the, the artist schedules are, you really do get a insight like, oh my God, they are just asked so, to do so much. And then the next day they're off to Europe, right? So it was <laughs> always inevitably like that. It was like, you either caught a tour the first day and they're working out all the bugs they're like yeah we just got all this gear and we haven't had time to <laughs> you know what i mean like so most of sound check is just literally spent patching things in and getting line check correct and then the other flip side of the coin is you're getting an artist on the last day of a 30 day run and they're just you know they just want to go home <laughs> yeah you kind of want to aim for that like sweet spot in the middle like day 10 or something like that <laughs> yeah no you never get that you never get a day 10 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Awesome, man. Well, look, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but uh, if anyone wants to learn more about you, maybe even potentially work with you, uh, what are the best places for them to to follow you online? Yeah, please. Uh, I finally got a, a website together. So it's it's fredarshambo.com. Um, and there's all the contact info that you need uh, to get in touch with me. Shoot me an email, talk about working on a project, see other projects that I've been a part of. 
um, that's really the best way. Um, yeah, you know, kind of the digital narrative is something that I kind of one either keep personal or kind of need to reinvent. But yeah, going to my website is is the best way for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely have the links in the show notes for sure. Perfect. Yeah, right appreciate it. Cool, man. Well, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for having me. So that was my interview with Frederick Archambault, and that was awesome. I really enjoyed that conversation, especially all the stuff about just breaking into the industry and the power of just showing up. You know, it seems so simple, but at the same time, so many people are afraid to do it and afraid to push forward and they give up so easily. And I think that everything that we talked about in this interview here is so important for people to hear if you actually are considering making a living at this. You know, you have to show up, you have to diversify your skills, you have to just be there and be ready to pounce on opportunities when they come. And, you know, Frederick has definitely done that himself. And that's part of the reason why he's had such a great career is because he's just adapted to things and he's constantly pushed himself to learn new things and take opportunities as they come. And yeah, it's led to some really cool projects for him. So uh, I thought it was definitely really interesting to hear his story and uh, great to chat about that element of the industry. And then I also thought it was cool to dig into some of his productions and especially when it came to things like guitar tones and, you know, what really goes into creating great sounding guitar tracks. And I thought he shared some really cool tips there as far as uh, what to do when you're using multiple microphones to get the right sound, but also make sure that things are in phase. Um, talking about his editing process when it came to guitars and how he likes to use DIs to help him with that. Um, And also some of the stuff about vocals and his signal chain and all that kind of stuff. I just thought these are all great takeaways that you can definitely implement into your own mixes and some techniques to try out to make sure that you're getting great sounds. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that episode. I hope that you did too. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for more help with creating pro-sounding recordings from your home studio, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That's where I work with musicians to help make the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music super easy. And there's so many great resources on the website to really make the process very clear and to learn the steps that go into it. And one resource that you're going to want to check out while you're there is called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I put out a few years ago that walks you through the step-by-step process of mixing your music, knowing what to do, what to pay attention to, what to listen for, how to dial in settings, all that kind of stuff so that you're not guessing as you work. Instead, you have a very clear focus of what to do, what order to work in, and that's ultimately going to allow you to make better sounding music in less time and without feeling so overwhelmed throughout the whole process. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of this episode. Thanks so much for sticking around to the very end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.